This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Andy, can you just share a bit of history or context of what's been driving the consolidation the the franchise dealer market in the UK over the last five years or so? Well, things are changing quite a lot at the moment. I think if you go five years ago and you look at the situation, it was still business as usual to a large degree. And what that meant was that manufacturers generally didn't want to overexpose themselves to any particular retailer, particularly the large public groups. So there was this unwritten rule that Nobody can have more than 10% either by count of the network or by volume of the network. And at that particular point, there was, you know, you were really into developing what you thought was a long-term relationship on a bricks and mortar model with a particular retailer. I think probably some of the smaller volume of the large company brands, let's take Toyota as an example, they were quite averse to get involved with the public companies. They wanted local heroes to a large extent, whereas some of the, the larger brands, you know, Vauxhall, Peugeot, Ford, etc., they had no choice but to get involved with the public companies from a large-scale perspective. And I think that one thing that's been driving it from that point five years ago to relatively recently was also then the fact that the OEMs uh, required a large capex being spent on creating brand environments, which, of course, for some of the local hero owner operators was expensive. For the larger PLCs was possible. I think it's it's been moving to a bit of a consolidation, so I would say about 18 months ago. But now we're at the point where that is really accelerating beyond belief frankly. So we're now into a very different situation than we were then or even two years ago. So just on that point around what the OEMs used to expect, so would they literally say to the retailer, you need to spend this amount of money on a showroom with this facility? So how would they define the retail environment they would want their brand? There was a, well, to start with, you had a sales planning volume because they knew what they wanted out of the territory they were talking about. And that then dictated a certain size of operation, if you like, in terms of showroom space, work bays, used car display, parts area, etc. But they wanted it very much bespoke to their brand. So there was a there's an, an overall design of the brand, particularly with the premium brands, but not just with the premium brands. That dictated the situation. I guess to a certain degree, that was quite a traditional way for a long period of time. Some people have have come to the party relatively recently with those brand environments. Some of them, some people established it. I mean, I was at Porsche for 12 years. You know, we established a brand new environment in 2004 pre-KN, which is still there to this particular day. Latterly, when I was with Jaguar Land Rover, we brought two brands together, Jaguar and Land Rover together in the same environment and fundamentally created globally a brand concept for the first time. So that's how it's been so far. But to answer your question, it's been based on territory potential plus brand environment. So a quantitative aspect and a qualitative aspect, really. Right, so they would say, I want to sell 100,000 vehicles in this region 
and then you have to build me the facilities to serve that territory effectively. I think it migrated to a certain degree from, let's say, I've used Guildford just to take a random location. Somebody would say, right, this is what we want in Guildford. And that five years ago would have been probably the conversation. That then was migrating increasingly into, well, actually, Guildford's not enough. We want a market area approach. So we want Surrey. So we want you to cover Surrey. So you, Mr. Dealer X, Retailer X, well, you know, we want one in, in Guildford. We want one in, let's say, Weybridge. We want one in Epsom. You know, this is our plan for the territory. And it may have been in certain metropolitan areas that that also included boutique-type facilities where it wasn't a full facility, but it was a, a boutique showroom environment, or it could have been a bespoke after-sales centre only. But effectively, it migrated into this approach of, what the facilities required in the area were to do the job. So we started at, let's say, one particular point and then went to a market area approach. Not for everybody, but increasingly that was the trend. And would they say that you need to spend a certain amount of money on the showroom? Well, the, the facility itself, the, you know, the, the OEM would have gone through a lot of procurement activity in terms of preferred suppliers who are supplying, for example, signage, flooring, desks, workshop equipment, et cetera, et cetera. So effectively, you were working on menu pricing, by and large, and that dictated the price. So you had the land cost, you had the facility cost in terms of the shell, but all the interior fittings were very bespoke to the manufacturer. And to a large degree, they were dictating who the supplier of those individual elements were as well. Oh, so you literally had no say over, or very little say over what goes in the showroom and you just had to purchase the products and, and effectively build it? I mean, effectively, you're also OEMs and not retailers. So you're actually applying your expertise in terms of how logistics of the business would work properly. And, you know, how you saw that, you'd be working with them, but you'd be working with them with a palette of their brand facility, their brand requirements, and, and their particular style and feel, really. So how is that changing today then? So you mentioned how it's, you know, it's, it's accelerated towards a consolidation or a multi-franchise. And how is that impacting as, we, as we're shifting online? Well, it's, I mean, to start with, it's affecting both bricks and mortar and the online bit. In terms of bricks and mortar, I mean, I mentioned before this, this unwritten rule that nobody gets more than 10%. That's gone out the window. I mean, quite frankly, it wasn't legally applicable anyway, but it was still there. That, that has disappeared because in reality, you know, especially post-COVID, it's now recognised that a lot of the, the smaller retailers either cannot afford some of these large investments or do not want to afford these large investments. So that's led to a certain degree of consolidation anyway. So you've got increasingly a large number of public companies with a disproportionate amount of facilities nationwide with one particular brand. And as the market's reduced, because the market was 10 minutes ago, 2.3 million in the UK, it was 1.6 last year. So the opportunity becomes a lot less for anybody anyway. And I think we're all envisaging the fact that taxes will rise, disposable income will fall. So therefore, the market might take some time to get back to where it was. So therefore, there is a consolidation just because the opportunity is less. And frankly, the profitability was also under threat anyway. 
So in the bricks and mortar world, you've got increasing an increasing move towards fewer franchisees who've got multiple sites of multiple brands throughout the UK, either on a regional basis or, or nationally. Then when you look at the online situation, I mean, that's, that's very interesting because that was there as a trend, but I would say at a relatively low level, you know. I mean, when I was on Omni Channel 18 months ago, you know, there's often had to describe to people in the industry what Omni Channel even meant. You know, they, they were nowhere near it. The, the car industry has been one of the last to get involved with online activity. Now that's really accelerated during the COVID period, partly needs must because suddenly people are into delivery at home like never before, partly because there's been some disruptors in the marketplace who provided new competition as well. So, so the, I mean, the online situation is a whole subject in itself outside that question that I'm sure we'll explore it. How is the, the OEM approaching online for new car sales? Yeah, again, well, that's a, a really good question because historically you operated with a franchise agreement and that franchise agreement gave you a margin and it gave you a set of standards and it gave you a certain contract period whereby you know you had to perform and that was either a five-year fixed period or it was a, a period in perpetuity with a two-year termination clause what's happened now because of the online activity the oems have realized that digitization gives them an opportunity that they never had before, really. And that opportunity is to get probably a bit closer to the customer in terms of pricing and in terms of dealing. So the franchise agreement formally with many brands is starting to be replaced now by what we call an agency agreement, which means that effectively the manufacturer will be responsible for vehicle pricing and supply and will own the stock of new vehicles and effectively, the retailer's job is fulfillment. I mean, clearly, it's a bit more complicated than that. But fundamentally, the onus is increasingly being taken by the manufacturer. And electrification, actually, to a large degree, has accelerated this as well. But the onus has been taken by the manufacturer to have a, a more direct responsibility in effectively trading their websites, you know, price, specification, volume, customer relationship management, et cetera, et cetera. So the relationship between the retailer and the OEM is going through a period of change at the moment, not with everybody, but certainly with some people quite substantially. And I think you will see different skill sets in the manufacturers because they've got to not just have brand marketeers now, but they've got to have operational marketeers who can effectively look at the analytics on the website and change pricing all the time particularly on the finance products. Right, because online information is effectively free and, and, and transparent. Therefore, the you have to have a market-based pricing system online. You can't really go through that typical old-school franchise agreement because you'll be probably be uncompetitive if you can't change your price on daily or weekly. Yeah, I mean, you know, now it's all about transparency to a large degree because – Historically, what, what happened from the, the customer journey perspective is that they were doing some of the journey at home in their own time on the web, and in particular, looking at car manufacturers, car configurators on their own websites, specifying a car up, which was their ideal car, and then rather clunkily 
then sending that specification to a retailer who would or would not then follow up. Now you've got a situation whereby that same customer can specify that car, but the next stage of the journey online now is that, well, yeah, I've got a part exchange. What is the guaranteed price for my part exchange? That will be up there within 60 seconds. Okay, I want to take it to the next stage. What is the finance situation here? And then you start going through a finance authorization. So effectively, the whole transaction could be completed online. Now, the issue with the OEM is that they want to control that more and more and more because you're almost getting into no haggle pricing from now on. An agency agreement certainly means no haggle pricing. But the, a large number of the retailers, particularly the large retailers, can now do fully online sales on pre-owned all day long with a manufacturer support on new. Not all the manufacturers are there yet on new, but increasingly they are. And in doing that, they're all realising that the historic franchise agreement will not facilitate what they want to do. And that's why they move into this different agency agreement. So again, you know, we're coming out of lockdown into a period of real transition in the industry, which the retailers are not pushing back against because, you know, from a financial perspective, the fact that they suddenly don't own the stock means that their financial parameters look massively better than they did before, really. They'll own the pre-owned stock, but they won't own the new car stock. And that takes enormous burden of some of their credit lines. So a real transition period from now on. So they'll still they'll just become an agent for the new vehicles and take a, a small commission for fulfillment or a fee for per vehicle fulfilled. And then they'll have to purchase the, the pre-owned either, I guess, via auction or trade-ins. Well, they, I mean, to start with, it can't be a small handling charge because otherwise it wouldn't work. The, the, the handling charge has to be very much in line with what a retailer was probably retaining before. Otherwise, the, the whole business model wouldn't. So that 8% kind of metal margin would have to be the, the hand, effectively a handling fee? Well, I think what the retailers would look at with a manufacturer is, is the retained profit rather than the pre-discount profit. It's understood the fact that, you know, manufacturers quoting, you know, manufacturer recommended retail price is for the birds in reality, unless you're Porsche or Ferrari or something like that. It, it's a, it's a historic thing that now will disappear over time. I mean, it had limited validity anyway, and now it's been seen through totally. But as 30% of the retailer's profit is still out of new cars, they still need that margin there. But they they will still take the responsibility for the used car that they will buy through that process. And that's where probably even more unit profit is. And then, of course, 40% of their profit comes from the after-sales part of the business anyway. So it's, I think the whole, you know, from the consumer perspective, this is good news because it creates price transparency. It removes haggle, which a lot of customers don't like, particularly by gender, particularly by age group. And, you know, it creates more of an environment of trust. But similarly, at, at the same time, the industry is consolidating and some of the retailers got their own brands that they want to develop at the same time. So lot, there's lots going on. So just in terms of that, that pricing structure then, so, so how do you think the new gross margin for franchise dealers is going to evolve over the next five, six years? I don't think it'll be much different than now, to be honest. It can't be because, you know, with the manufacturer agreement, facilities have been built, invested in, 
They can't be written off. They can't be amortised straight away. So that, that is a fixed asset that has to be recognised. I think what you'll have is that the size of the networks will reduce substantially. Uh, I mean, the UK is not a big country geographically. And therefore, you know, people are increasingly prepared to travel to buy. And the cars are extremely reliable anyway. So it's not as though you need a local guy for servicing because your servicing can be every once, every year or every two years, maybe. So that, that's not a, a big deal anymore. So you're going to get a consolidation of the network, the same margin structure, which means that the, the retailers should look at improved profitability because up to now, the vast majority have been looking at a return on sales figure of only about 1%, and that's not great. And so do you think that this over the next five, six years, we're going to see more on, online penetration increase? How will the OEMs approach the new build-out of retail units, or are we going to see very few new bigger showrooms that we historically had? Well, I think on, on the first point, I mean, the, the bit that needs clarification is that this is all about omni-channel now rather than online because the customer still wants to – I mean, this is a very emotional purchase. They still want to touch and feel and sit in and drive, and the test drive is very important, especially when they're experiencing, for example, electric cars or hybrid cars for the first time. But what they absolutely do want is control. They want 24-7 control to dip in and dip out of the journey as they feel fit. So that historically, when it was a question of, right, I go in the showroom, you know, I make an appointment, I go through the test drive, the, the retailer values my Partex, and then I do a deal, is not the case now. I mean, you could do a deal at 11 o'clock at night, you know, online, having got in the showroom that day and not be prepared to actually sign up at that moment in time, but want to come back and discuss it a bit more, that the tension, if there was any tension, and sometimes attention was perceived, is taken out of the process. So I think we should be talking omni-channel more than online. Strict online will happen, but I think it'd be a very low percentage. Omni-channel will be de rigueur, if you like. Then to come to the second part of your question, will there be big facilities in the future? I think it's a lot less likely you're going to have new bills. But I think, I think what you do need is that when you walk into that brand environment, there's got to be a good reason to go in there. So it's it's really got to be more than a showroom. It's got to be a fantastic brand environment whereby you're buying into not just the car, but why you're buying into that brand environment, why you're buying into that, that lifestyle, what is that saying about you, especially for the premium brands, for sure. Um, so I think, you know, and it might well be, of course, that that still sees a proliferation of, metropolitan boutique type facilities as well and i think one of the reasons why you want to go in those environments is that at the same time as this digitization revolution you've got the electric car revolution and people do need to be educated in terms of how this works for them because it is a bit of a drive, different driving experience and it's certainly a different ownership experience and they're going to need that face-to-face -face discussion and expertise to take them along the journey so it's omni-channel, it's about customer control, it's about bricks and mortar being strong, but it's about an identical equivalent process with sheer transparency between the online process and the offline process so that you're not clunkily having to start again. 
But from an operational point of view, if the dealer is becoming more of an agent rather than a traditional retailer, would those new showrooms be you know, much smaller, more brand experience type showrooms rather than actually holding all the inventory there, for example, to serve that region? Would you not centralize that inventory elsewhere or pull it into it and then serve the customer from, from that larger pool? Or how, how do you see changes operationally? I think you've got to get a mix of different environments. So you've got to get what what we traditionally used to call hub and spoke. So you, you might get one big mothership operation whereby you really do experience the brand, you know, smell, touch, feel, history, legacy of the brand, so on and so forth. But then let's say, you know, in a location 10 miles away, it might be the fact that there's a, you know, a smaller operation that fulfills your needs as well. So you can actually go to the hub location but you're buying from the next town, which is closer to you. However, at the same time, because of the consolidation that's taking place, I think you're also going to get facilities that cover more than one brand. So, for example, you've got PSA now, who've got Vauxhall, Peugeot, Citroën, Fiat. It wouldn't be a surprise to see all those brands being put together within the same building envelope you know, with different brand environments by brand in that building envelope, but, the, you know, a certain economy of scale there and the back-of-house workshop covering all four vehicle, four vehicle brands together. To a certain degree, you know, some people will not do that. Audi will be standalone even within VW Group. And, and But I think you could get that tendency. And there are some brands like Vauxhall at the moment who need now to partner with another brand because otherwise the viability of the franchise was simply not stack up. And that's the case for many of the smaller volume brands, actually. So I think you're going to get a full mix of facility formats, strong brand environments, but also localization of facilities that suit the customer. I think, again, Will, it's all about putting the customer in control, taking the tension out of the system and making sure you can develop a good relationship with them. Well, it's interesting how you said the, the dealers effect or on, on the new side of things, the dealers effectively becoming a, an agent that doesn't have to buy inventory and just serves the OEM on, a, on an agency basis and then can deal with the after sales and the used business on the other side. But this, the new still needs to maintain that gross margin to make the economics work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the way they do that is buying that, fi- that fixed handling. So if, for example, you know, there's a Volkswagen product there that is, you know, and 83% of cars are bought on finance anyway. So the customer is buying, you know, the vehicles on pounds per month. So the customer buys a car for, let's say, £250 a month from Volkswagen, a Volkswagen car from a Volkswagen retailer. But effectively, the, re- the retailer is on a, a fixed handling charge. The only variable in the deal increasingly becomes the part exchange value. You know, everything else is more or less fixed. So, so the retailer... He's not dealing anymore. You know, he's facilitating the transaction, really. Yeah, so it becomes less about buying inventory, turning inventory, and more just facilitating interaction. Yeah, and that, and that builds trust with the customer anyway, because they can see on the website to start with, this is the price of the car. And actually, you can go to the website, and this is the valuation of your used car as you described it at the moment. So therefore, the net cost is X. And this is the finance rate, and that's what it will be, depending upon your personal 
you know, financial circumstances, which, you know, is probably another variable now with the different FCA rules that have come in. And so what type of used cars do franchise dealers typically sell? Again, traditionally, their source of used cars was part exchanges, plus vehicles that they then bought from the auctions. That hasn't materially changed. I think what has changed is the scale and the importance of that operation. So now all retailers will look for at least a, a one-to-one selling ratio between new and used, and probably make a, a greater profit per unit on used than new as well now. They'll certainly generate part exchanges, but they'll be buying cars all the time from the auctions and indeed trading cars to the auctions. So they'll be making sure that they've got stock there that's appropriate. Some retailers will concentrate on on vehicles that are only up to, let's say, five years old. Some independent retailers will concentrate on a wider age group of vehicles and and multi-brand. Some of the the new uh, disruptors in the market will actually concentrate on vehicles that are just up to three years old. So, But fundamentally, you've got a part exchange stock, you've got your own ex-demonstrators, but you're buying vehicles from auctions and other traders, really. What's the mix that you aim for between part exchange and auction, typically? You would never define the mix because, in reality, it's a question of where you get the supply from. I mean, if you look at what's happened over the past 12 months with the new car market, that means that we've got the opposite to a bubble coming in two years' time because, you know, only 1.6 million new cars produced means that when people reach the end of their finance agreement, instead of expecting 2.5 million ex-new cars coming to the market that are three years old, there's only 1.6 million of them. So there's going to be a huge shortage in the future. That means people will dial up their auction activity and their buying activity because otherwise they just will not have the stock required to do the job for themselves, really. Just on the point of the gross margin, so one thing I noticed was when looking at the US market versus the UK market was that the gross margin of used vehicles in the UK is fairly high. And like you said, it's higher than new, effectively 7 to 8% or a bit higher. Whereas in the US, the used gross margin is much, much lower than the new. And that, I think, is because of the price transparency that the US have seen in the used market, which doesn't seem to have occurred in the UK. Why do you think there's a difference in in a higher gross margin in the UK for used versus new? Well, I think to start with, you know, and I, I was based in the US for three years myself, the UK retailers are better pre-owned than the US retailers are as a, as a general statement. I'm not saying the US dealers are poor, they're not, they're very, very good. I think that the new car margins are probably stronger with some brands in the States. And of course, you've got a different a different balance of power between the OEM and the franchisee in the States because of the way that the franchise laws work over there. So it's not just one lever that you're pulling there. There's, there's umpteen factors behind that, frankly. But and of course, you you know you've got 17, 18 million cars being produced there, so you, you're going to get a variation on, on on themes there. In the UK, you've got retailers that really come from that used car background to a large extent and have concentrated on that for many a year. And because the OEMs have pushed them into reducing margins on new cars because of that the market in the UK has been a push market rather than a pull market from a consumer perspective for some years, dependent upon brand. That means that the retailers simply had to concentrate on pre-owned vehicles to make the whole business case for the dealership to work, really. 
rest of the OEM would pressure new margins to to, to sell to drive volume, and therefore that con- that made the dealer focus on the used car. It was a subconscious rather than a conscious activity, but for sure it's happened. Do you not see the the fact that we're moving online, pricing is more transparent and market based online? Do you think that's not going to increase or pressure price in 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 used going forward? I don't in a way because I think I think the fact that you're taking out the concept of negotiation, used vehicle prices versus the the come of the sticker price. There's only about a two percent variation between transaction price and sticker price, you know, for the organisations that I, I know well. So that you're almost into no haggle to start with. You know, vehicles are keenly priced. I mean, consumers know what their part exchange is worth all the time. They've got various opportunities to dispose of their used cars with rebuyanycar.com and so on and so forth. Now, so you know, I think the bandwidth on pricing is quite limited, really. And the retailer has to make a certain margin to to be viable. So, and of course, there's umpteen guidebooks out there that tell you not just what the the wholesale price should be or the auction price should be, but also what transaction prices are locally. You know, that's another aspect of digitization. You can see what prices are for cars in a territory. I mean, that's been the case in the markets for a period of time. I mean, it's increasing the case now just by scraping the web, actually. So you think used used gross margins are somewhat stable for the for dealers going forward? I think it all depends on supply and demand. When supply is tight, obviously margins are going to go up. When you've got you know too much vehicles coming through, and that might be the fact that the the new cars are being pushed, and some of those used cars are effectively new cars with no mileage on. The whole market you know slightly disintegrates. I think the agency agreements on new will, if anything, benefit used. How does the OEM impact the pricing of those used vehicles to franchise data sales? Well, legally, they can't. You know, there can't be resale price maintenance there. I guess the only way that they can is, again, through supply and demand. I mean, you've got some premium brands who have schemes with the the retailers whereby you get a, a, a certain bonus level on buying their ex-employee cars, their ex-press cars, their ex-marketing cars, and you're expected to buy a number of vehicles per year off them. So therefore, they're influencing it by your stock management. They're influencing your stock in the first place. And that, to a certain degree, will influence margins and prices. But outside that, they, they can't have an input. But let's say that you're selling a new Audi A3 from Audi 2021 plate and there's a new 2018 or 19 or 20 plate coming. If you were to price that even market price or below that market price, would Audi then be you know, kind of annoyed because thus degrading the new, the new vehicle they have is the, if there's a huge price difference? The manufacturer's expectation is that they're responsible for demand generation on new cars. So they're responsible for the, the advertised finance rate, if you like, the, the pounds per month rate. And increasingly, the, the retailers don't take a responsibility for new car advertising. They take a responsibility for used car advertising. So if you then, instead of, let's say, what VW would expect it to be £250 a month, you started doing it at £200 a month, you you would start to create 
you know, disharmony in the network uh, and probably disharmony with the manufacturer, they'd be limited to what they would say to you. But there'd be no motivation doing it anyway, really, because the market price is £250 a month. And, you know, unless you've got an absolute glut of vehicles, which certainly isn't the case and is not likely to be the case for some substantial time, you just be giving away margin when there's no more product coming through. There's no point, really. Well, and I'm thinking also for MotorPoint, for example, that sell new, nearly new vehicles. So can the franchise dealers really sell nearly new vehicles like MotorPoint, or does it make that dynamic between the OEM quite difficult? They do exactly that. They do exactly what MotorPoint are doing there. The, the vast majority of, of car retailers with franchises are selling cars up to five years old. I mean, MotorPoint, I think, are selling cars up to really three years old. So they've got a tighter perspective on it, if you like, and that's part of their business case. But there's not a huge difference as regards the stock. Of course, what you've got is MotorPoint is a, a used car market effectively doing fixed price selling anyway and effectively providing a multi-brand consumer offer and doing it very successfully, no doubt about it, and having an online presence now. But there's nothing that they are doing now that a large retail group cannot do and one might say is not doing. You know, that's that's normal now, really. So what do MotorPoint do so well, or if do they have any advantage at all in selling nearly new vehicles versus other franchise dealers? I mean, I just think they're very good at what they do. You know, they're buying good stock, and they're clearly very good at buying stock. They're very good at reconditioning those cars. They're very good at the marketing. And they've kept their locations probably outside some of the higher cost areas of the south of England. You know, they, they hardly a geographic group, but, I mean, they've certainly, you know, not got a proliferation around the London area. I think they're just very good, and they've got a consumer offer that they stick to and are doing it very efficiently. But fundamentally, there is no big gap now between what they are doing and what a retail group, a large retail group is doing. One might say that the large retail groups have also moved to a certain degree into similar used car supermarkets. But what the large retail groups have got is two other profit centres. They've got a new car profit centre and they've got a, an after-sales profit centre much more substantial than MotorPoint. I mean, to a certain degree, the market cap of, you know, the different organisations defies logic. You know, but there's a lot of things in the market at the moment that defy logic in terms of market cap. And, you know, and I think really that's because investors are looking for businesses to turn themselves from analogue businesses to digital businesses. And there's probably a big business PR job to be done to make sure that everybody understands the fact that there's not a huge gap in the first place. There's a, you know, I mean, MotorPoint went to market with 200 million in the first instance. And now it's about 248 million, I think. You know, they're in vogue at the moment, that type of organisation. But believe me, that gap, I, in my personal opinion, will narrow very quickly because the, the, the very big, large groups, I'm talking about the oligopoly organisation, the top six here, can do everything that MotorPoint and similar can do, and they can do it more effectively, actually. But there is this gap in terms of perspective of the market, the financial market. Why can they do it more effectively? Well, they, fundamentally, because they're bigger. You know, I mean, the, the large groups are selling, I mean, the most profitable group in the UK is Arnold Clark, and they are making way over £100 million profit. 
They are the best used car dealers in the UK. They're multi-brand, they're now national, and they do a lot more pre-owned than new. I'd say probably a two and a half to one ratio. But there's there's not a large group out there now that cannot have the the buying power, probably more buying power than Motorpoint because the scale is just significant to start with. And they've got two of the profit centers. So they're not totally dependent on the used car market. And therefore, looking forward going to a previous point that I made, they're not exposed to the fact that the new car market went down by one point, you know, from by 700,000 cars in a year. With that, that surfeit of used cars coming through in two years' time, that will fundamentally affect anybody who's only selling used cars. I mean, they've got a wider church of profit revenues, really. So back to, back to the point you mentioned already, originally, where these franchise dealers are moving to sell more brands, uh, become more of an agent. So you actually you think we're going to see really the franchise dealers converging with with a used car supermarket model, effectively on the used side and and somewhat the new side. And there's not much advantage for Motorpoint in procuring these nearly new vehicles, like below fifteen thousand mileage, versus the Arnold. Clarks or, or these other franchise dealers? I think Arnold Clark is head and shoulders in front of anybody, quite frankly. Why is that? Because they've been doing it a long time. They've got a great geographic spread. Um, they've got systems and processes that are embedded, and they do it time and time again. And they've just got the sheer scale of volume now. And therefore, they've got to that size, and, they, and they're doing it, and they're making a £110 million profit. You know, they're there. Uh, and a, as a private company as well, the next, not exposed to some of the vagaries and some of the time-consuming aspects of the city, really, as well. But I, th- I think you've already got other retailers like Sitna, as an example, who own used car supermarkets. You've got Pendragon, who own used car supermarkets. They had a problem with some of their used car supermarkets, but but they own them. Virtue have got some you know, soulless used car supermarkets. So you've got it there but i think one thing that is particularly pertinent to the large retail groups is that they understand the fact that the profitability that they've got at the moment is on after sales per site then pre-owned on site and then on new so the of the 100 pound profit that they're making as a business you know only let's say 35 pounds of it is from the used car so giving away the other 65 would not be sensible for them they can expand laterally into those used car supermarkets for sure. But you know, their core business model now is going to be omni-channel activity on new and used cars and after sales. And they might have some, you know, some businesses like that, but it doesn't change that their core is their core, really. Do you think Motorpoint has any advantage in their model? You know, nearly new vehicles, somewhat larger plots. I think they have a larger prep centre for, for refurb? They've certainly exploited the economies of scale. I mean, the prep centre is a classic whereby, you know, a centralised prep centre means that you've got efficiencies and effectiveness there, not just in terms of logistics, but in terms of tack times and and the speed you're putting a, a car through because you've got everything in one, console, one consolidated place. And Motorpoint will transfer cars at a customer cost between various retail points. So. I think they, you know, they are very good at what they do. You know, there's absolutely no doubt about that. There are others coming through that will similarly be Motorpoint competitors, but the the large retailers are doing similar activity already as well. You know, um, so that there's not a huge difference between the two. 
The difference is only that what is considered to be massively in vogue at the moment and what is considered to be out of vogue whilst they transition in terms of the new omnichannel and online environment. Can we just talk about online in a bit of detail now? Maybe you can share a bit of context to when you first started looking at or even rolling out online, you know, four or five years ago in the UK. Well, I think, you know, even four or five years ago, there wasn't a huge level of activity, frankly. You know, and I think what you've what you've got is that people were going through the various steps of, of getting parts of their IT sorted out. But the pastoral months have seen a revolution, really. And so that therefore, you know, it would be very unusual now to go on a retailer's website and not to be able to do the whole transaction online. And they've really caught up in the past 12 months. The only difference between the large retailers now and some of the, the new disruptors in the marketplace is the amount of marketing that's been spent on you know, presenting a brand condition. Kazoo, Cinch, I mean, there's hardly a TV ad break that's not got one or the other on there. So therefore, in a way, they are pioneering as regards the communication to the customer, as regards a used car offer, more pioneering than the actual offer itself. The offer is very, very similar, frankly, but they're spending huge, I mean, huge marketing dollars. And therefore, you know, the viability of the business is not profitable at this stage because they're over dialing up advertising. And in Kazoo's case, of course, two football teams being sponsored on the, their shirts and the consequence of that. And, and What's your view on that, Andy, though? Because that's what I've always found interesting. If you go and look at, I mean, Kazoo just purchased um, Imperial, yeah, which, which is effectively you know a used car supermarket, which is traditional and in, in every way, and they and they're using the lots for collection centers. So, how do you view this fact that you know, national marketing and hugely scaling marketing from the Kazoo and this in the Kinchis above the other traditional is is that an advantage in driving traffic in consumers to then just sell the similar products? from a similar operational setup as, as the traditional players? Well, I think, I mean, uh, the Kazoo one is very interesting because, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, Chesterman's been very successful in previous career with Zoopla and so on and so forth. And to start with, you thought, well, this isn't going to work. You know, I mean, there's no USP there, really. The Imperial acquisition then sort of reinforced the fact that, okay, they're becoming more traditional. Now, they didn't really buy Imperial and actually keep them as used car supermarkets. They've kept them as fulfillment centres, if you like. So they've, they've slightly repurposed them. But they're not so different than anybody else in reality now. And in fact, where they are different is that they've got less stock. You know, the company I'm chairman of, without talking about us, you know, we've got 9,000 cars in stock at any one moment in time, you know, because we've got less than 4,000. So, so the choice is there. Already, but I think Kazoo have then been very clever in establishing their brand name, and it's expensive to do so, and you need deep pockets to do so, and they've certainly done that. And be it Aston Villa or be it Everton or, or whatever it might be, you know, they're establishing the brand name and riding the wave at the moment. But the fundamental business proposition is not avant-garde at all. All they're doing is dialing up the communication of the customer offer that was there to a degree already. But they have been, you know, they have been useful because it's helped accelerate the rest of the industry to sort of say, okay, you know, we need to make sure that not so much on the, you know, you can't spend 
40 million quid on, on advertising because that's more than your PBT. But, you know, the, the consumer offer per se is, is no different. I think in the case of Cinch, which is a BCA company, they've already got fulfillment centres because they've got huge auction houses and those auction houses to a large extent have not been open for physical auctions for some time. So they already had the footprint there and they've probably seen that the fact that the valuation of a business like Kazoo is, I would say, disproportionate at the moment. And again, it would like a piece of that particular action. I think in both those cases, you know, and particularly the Kazoo case, I mean, that the advertising on TV features heavily this delivery to your home. Well, you try and do home delivery in central London, you know, it's a no-no, really. That's why fulfillment or click and collect is very important. And I think you'll see an increasing tendency towards click and collect. And why not so anyway? Because you've got a part exchange vehicle, probably. You know, the hassle has been taken out of the, the negotiation of the deal. It's all transparent. There's no reason why they can't be click and collect. And I think that's how it will all settle down. So, you know, they are a consumer alternative. But to get back to your question, again, there's nothing they're doing apart from the, de- the degree to which they've dialed up the marketing more than a large PLC group. But they, what they would say, their, their argument would be our online, effectively online only model, you know, online based model where they have you know, fulfillment centers rather than bigger expensive showrooms or smaller data lots. They have larger centralized prep centers, similar to Carvana in the US, where they refurb cars at scale. And all that does is filter through to a lower unit cost to sell the used car at a discount to what up, what the franchise dealers or Motorpoint or any of the other dealers can actually sell at. And when you scale the inventory online, Make that make that available as one pool of inventory. You can then effectively sell cars cheaper than other players. But they're not. They're not, they're not selling cars cheaper. I mean, uh, and actually, there'd be no reason not now. Yeah, yeah there'd be no reason to sell cars cheaper because you know the business is not profitable to start with. So the supply of used vehicles is relatively fixed at the moment. You know, we're in a shortage of supply, more than a, a glut of supply. And again, you know, that is extremely unlikely to change in the next 36 months for sure is that a geographical element of the uk where most of the oems are european-based or us-based and they have to ship into the uk and i guess because they're also we drive on a different side of the lane which which also probably means that their right hand drives not left hand drives which means you can't actually ship them out anywhere else does that make it make it different than the carvan in the us which the supplies is a bit more fluid than the uk it seems I think the, the left-hand drive, right-hand drive thing is a factor. But fundamentally, the, the source problem is the new car market going down by 700,000 units. Uh, and that just working its way through the whole system. That is the fundamental problem. Now, that you're quite right. That would be resolved if you had a situation whereby you could actually sell left-hand drive cars, like Europe. So if you're in Germany doing this and then suddenly you take cars from Holland or Italy or whatever, you'd resolve the problem straight away. But that's not the case. So that, that adds to the flavour of the, the challenge, if you like. You know, could they at some time in the future operate on skinnier margins? I don't know. It's theoretically possible maybe on some products. But, you know, the, the large retail groups are selling more used cars than them anyway. 
That means that their buying power already is phenomenal. They're buying cars at the auctions as well, so that you know to make a profit out of a used car, you've got to buy it right in the first instance. And 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 Kazoo have got no greater buying power, or might say less buying power than uh, you know a, a large retail group. Where's the advantage in procuring those vehicles, like from on from auctions? Does anyone have an advantage in sourcing them? Not, not really. I, I think the advantage is in in your procurement expertise, you know, um, and, and knowing the market and knowing how the wholesale retail price is trended. I think using analytics moving forward and, and getting that closeness of day-to-day data between wholesale and retail prices is a huge advantage. It's only going to be more competitive as well when Kazoo and Motorpoint and the franchise dealers are all, com- all looking to purchase these vehicles through auctions. But recognising the fact that the franchise network size is going down by number anyway because of what I mentioned before in terms of people just giving up that type of business, really, and, and the consolidation. But is the franchise, I mean, I was looking on on Virtue and, and Bristol Street earlier online, and the inventory available seems to be different. I think there was obviously much more on Bristol Street, lower on Virtue. I mean, are you, are the franchises looking to have a holistic or view of the inventory like like kazoo would say so they would say all of our vehicles are available on one side for the consumer to give you the full perspective of our inventory yeah and and what you've got let's say you can go on a franchise site from virtue let's say a bmw site in sunderland and you'll see the bmws there if you go on you know the virtue used car site you'll see everything in reality Uh, and i think one of the challenges for the large retail groups, is developing the used car multi-brand offer from a marketing perspective, not in terms of what they're doing, but it's the spend of getting that message out there and search engine optimization and activities like that, and probably developing partnerships with people as well, because there's more than one route to market, and there are other trusted consumer brands out there that you can cuddle up with that effectively drives business to your site anyway. So you, you've, you've got to salute the franchise flag, but you've also, at the same time, got to have an all, a multi-brand offer through your own website, but it's driving people through to your own website that's part of the issue. And how do you compete with that, though? So let's say that you, the franchise dealers have, have larger buying power, have a larger pool of inventory, can display it online, can effectively fulfill it for a similar cost. Let's say it's even more expensive in the worst case than, than a kazoo. But kazoo are spending five, six times the amount of marketing spent. So they drive five, six times the amount of traffic to their website. How do you compete with that? Well, you can't compete with their marketing spend, that is for sure. But one advantage you've got is that you've already got a relationship with the customer in the first place because you know, you're selling 90 to 100,000 new cars every year. You're selling 90 to 100 used cars every year. So you've got 200,000 relationships that have been developed every single year. And you've got CRM activity to make sure that you can churn those cars when you want to churn those cars because they're all on finance agreements. So you become the go-to place and you become, as a consumer, subject to some proactive marketing on, I want to buy your car off you and it's time to change your car. So, I mean, that, that you're not going to compete with Kazoo's advertising. And, you know, how long Kazoo can continue with that advertising will depend upon their overall profitability, I guess. That they're doing what one would do to create breakthrough at the moment. 
brand breakthrough. It's perfectly understandable and, and probably a very smart way of doing it. But from the other end of the telescope, they're fighting with franchise networks who've already got historic relationships and huge databases that's also facilitated every single day by workshops looking after those customers' cars. So that, you know, they've not only got the data, they're actually seeing the cars on a regular basis back in the workshops and, you know, and making offers to buy that car back and maybe churn that customer before their 36-month agreement is finished, you know, Let's say it's 30 months, you sort of say, actually, it's a good time for you to change. This is the finance rate now. This is the deal. We can move you to the next car with a very, you know, insubstantial change on the monthly payment. That's that's how the there's different dynamics there. One's got an advantage on marketing power, the other one's got an advantage on, on customer control. And, and what about the unit cost of selling a vehicle in the old traditional physical world versus this new bricks and clicks world for the franchise dealer? Is it is it materially lower because you get to cut out some cost? And I mean, it is possible over time that you start looking at the sales remuneration because if you are doing all the activity and the salesman is then just fulfilling the deal, then you might look at some of those situations slightly differently as regards you know performance-related pay and things like that. But probably it's the case that you know, do you need as many people? That's where there'll be a difference. I mean, quality people are hard to come by and that the the churn rate of sales execs in the industry will be more than 30% per year. So, you know, you want to keep people there for sure. But the, there are probably some changes that will take place over time because the skill level will have to be different. And, you know, we're back to the fact that it's not really online, it's, it's omni-channel and customers will go there and talk to a trusted advisor who will do the fulfillment on that deal. And they'll expect that trusted advisor to be perfectly knowledgeable about the product itself, really, quite rightly. If you're spending 60000 on a BMW, you want to know that this guy has on all the training courses and he can explain to you in detail why this car might be suitable for you in a consultative way without overselling it to you. You don't need you know, sales reps in every dealer lot that, that deals with every single customer that comes through the door in the same way that they used to. So you can cut out potentially a portion of the sales reps and a portion of their commission. Well, I think, I mean, you still need to make sure that everybody who walks through that door is, is being dealt with in the way that they want to be dealt with. And that's quickly as well, because they don't want to dwell forever with you. So whether or not that changes the number of sales execs, I, I you know, I would question, you know, the, the on, it depends on the, how the pattern between omnichannel and non-omnichannel works over a period of time. I think it's more likely that increasing the vast majority is going to go that way. I, I think the, the the qualitative issue is the one to make sure you've got the right people who are trained and remunerated and got the right attitude more than anything else to actually deal appropriately with the customers and give them a good experience. But then if you look at the kazoo what they would say, what they would say, well, we're cutting out all that cost. You have less retail footprint, which is obviously cheaper for us, but also we don't have the sales rep and commission that we have to pay on the performance side of the things. Yeah, sure. But at this moment in time, we've also not got the level of transactions that justify anything. So, you know, I mean, you know, it's not as they're, not, they're not in profit. You know, they're doing a great job on marketing, but at this moment in time, there's not a financial business case in terms of the PL. You know, that's somewhere in the future, maybe, uh, but it's not there yet. And even then, 
you've got to fulfill the deal. You've got to do a handover of the car. And that means that, you know, the customer increasingly in the age of electrification, you know, will need to have things explained to them. And that involves people. Otherwise, you could get to the stage of having a poor experience because, okay, I didn't know it did that. You know, or I didn't, you know, I didn't know we could do well, And they're doing last mile delivery as well, right? So they have these trailers with the cars on the back and they're delivering them, which is obviously super expensive. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's what I said before. I mean, I think click and collect is probably the way forward more than just delivery because, honestly, where I live, if somebody tried to deliver a car here, they'd never get their truck back up the driveway. You know, it would be absolutely impossible. And, you know, imagine trying to do that in, you know, tight street in Clapham. I mean, it, you know, where would you park the thing? It, it's not possible, really. So, they, you know, I'm not knocking what they're doing, but I think in reality, you know, it's going to be a bit more complex than that. And it's very easy to run away with the fact that because they've developed a brand very, very quickly, and, it, you know, it is there quickly, but it's not in profit yet, you know, and it's not got the level of transactions per month yet, and it's not got the level of stock yet that says that this is going to be in profit anytime soon, I would suggest. How do you compare, well, let's say that if you're running Motorpoint, how would you look to, to position Motorpoint versus Kazoo, given that Kazoo, like you said, are blitz in the market with, with advertising spend, building a brand, driving traffic, and effectively have the same setup as Motorpoint? Yeah, but I think the differential aspects really is the marketing spend. And both Cinch and Kazoo, and both together, you know, and we buy any car as another BCA company because effectively Cinch is like we sell any car. That's what it is. You know, their marketing spend is the, the major differential. So Motorpoint is more like franchise dealers regards the challenges it's got with a Kazoo. Kazoo have got to turn their marketing spend into a business case. And then what about Motorpoint versus the franchise dealers in terms of their structure? Do you think they're a disadvantage because they haven't got the two other profit pools and the relationship with the OEMs on the new side? I would say yes, but they will say that then allows them to focus lock, stock and barrel on what they do very well. And I would say that's a fair point from their perspective. And they're clearly doing well in that regard, absolutely no doubt at all. So, you know, they've carved out a position in the geographical locations where they're represented, which is Midlands and North to a large extent, but they've not got those two other profit centres and they're not new now. So it almost proves that the businesses can sit by, side by side. I think where you're going to get the real transition and revolution is what's happening with the franchise retailers and the consolidation and the fact that you're going to get huge, you know, multi-billion turnover groups there. You know, I mean, the possibility of an 8 billion turnover group is not that far away to my mind, you know, and, and that's substantially larger than the motor point or whoever, really. That's the difference. What do you think the market misses, though, Andy, about in terms of from a valuation perspective in the city and in, in, in not understanding or not grasping this opportunity that the franchise dealers have in shifting online? I think, well, I think retail generally is out of vogue at the moment and understandably post-COVID to a certain degree. Oh, post, oh, we're still in COVID, aren't we? But we're hopefully going to be post-COVID soon. So, I mean, re- retail is out of vogue. I think they, they see the fact that, well, how does an analog business in an online environment cut its cloth in terms of fixed facilities? How does it transition? I think there's a huge education job to take place because some of the valuations put behind Kazoo have got no validity. 
in reality at all. I mean, Motorpoint's uh, market cap is extraordinarily large for what they're doing, frankly, when you consider the property portfolio of some of the large groups. So, you know, I think we're at a moment in time whereby certain things are in fashion, certain things are not in fashion. And therefore, the job really for the large retail groups is to develop the digital business quickly, without a shadow of doubt, market that digital business quickly, probably develop some partnerships there at the same time, and do a huge education job on the validity of how they're going around in the business. I mean, I think those are the core ingredients of success now. And it will happen. Will it happen for a small regional group of four or five sites? I suspect the answer is no, it won't. Will it happen for somebody who's got 150 to 200 sites and more? Yes, I think it definitely will. What is the biggest challenge for those bigger franchise dealers? I think digitization is a huge challenge, frankly. But it's not a question of IT capability. It's a question of of transforming the business from a bricks and mortar business to a bricks and mortar and digital business with exactly the same data at any one moment in time so the customer is in control and doesn't have to go through any clunky processes. That's the challenge that's taking place. But it is there. And I think once people come out of the the pandemic and go back into a, a normal shopping environment, they'll see that more than ever before. I mean, it's quite remarkable in a way that the car retailers have done so well during three lockdowns. I mean, quite extraordinary frankly. And I think when you see the March results, that will underline that particular factor, you know, because showrooms are closed and the level of transactions is still remarkably high. You know, there's, there's a huge level of pent-up demand out there. People can't buy houses. Well, they could buy houses, but they're not likely to, I don't think, in the short term. They can't go on holidays, but they want to spend their money. They've saved a lot of money in the past 12 months. I think you're going to see a bonanza. And I think people will, for the first time, really experience the control that an omnichannel environment will create for them. And I think things will take off, actually. And I think you, there'll be a greater appreciation that things have changed, which people can't really see sufficiently at the moment. But, and it's not the same for everybody, of course, but I, I'm talking about the real big guys. Have, have, they've jumped the hurdle, for sure. Last question, Andy, and that's just around operationally. So given that you mentioned that Click and Collect is typically going to be the best model do you see the bigger franchises moving more towards, again, having the new franchise showrooms that we mentioned that might be slightly a bit smaller with the new agency agreement, but also having larger prep centers for reconditioning on the use side and then using that, using those old dealerships for the for the fulfillment centers? Or how do you see operationally the franchise dealer network changing? I don't think that will change much because if you've got a franchise to start with, you want to bring people into that environment and, and you want to do that click and collect from there because that's where your staff is based and that's where you can show them not just the product, but the brand they're buying into, really. And that's where the, the trained staff are. And that's where you can create the relationship with the after-sales center as well who are going to look after them from during the ownership experience. So... So it's not just a question of the, the delivery of the car, it's the start of the relationship of the ownership, really, which is really critical. And you you know, and we've invested a huge amount in these brand centers. So people want to show you why you're buying into BMW. What is that all about? You know, and, and BMW and the like would want exactly that at the same time, you know, quite understandably. I'd say again, 
On top of this is a situation where you've got an electric car revolution. And, you know, the need to explain that is absolutely pertinent as well. You know, what people are, are then dealing with. That's, a, that's the X factor in all this at the same time, I think. Which could also hurt the after-sales business and will completely change the, the after-sales business for the franchise dealers as well. In a decade's time, yeah. But the vehicle part that's out there is the vehicle part that's out there. And it, that's not really changed much between now and 2030, really. But you're right. I mean, the service over the air and such like software updates and so forth, they're already happening. But, you know, moving forward in buying a new car, you know, because electrification means that you're no longer going to get really interested in buying a, a sexy V8 engine car. The engine will become a hygiene factor. What you're buying is is brand design, customer experience, and connectivity. And the connectivity and customer experience bit are really important. And that's where the retailers can really step up. The brand and design bit is the OEM responsibility. The customer experience and the connectivity is a massive part for the retailers. And, and keeping that, you know, connectivity updated with so that it's personalized and individualized and bespoke to that customer is what's going to happen as well, really. Final question, Andy. Let's say we're looking back in seven years' time and Kazoo are winning the market effectively and used and have selling more volume than all the franchise dealers. What do you think the reason would be? I don't think it's going to happen. It's like... I just can't visualise that situation. I think Kazoo are here to stay. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And they will provide customers with an option. But I think the biggest change you're going to see versus today is the fact that the retailers will have moved from not just saluting a franchise flag, but into multi-brand, online, omni-channel, pre-owned as well. And therefore, the gap is less because the, the consumer assurance that's required you know, in buying that car will migrate to very similar aspects, frankly. And it's a question of how well you do it, how well you do the fulfillment, how well you look after the customers. That That's not going to change. I mean, we're going to be in the world of 24-7 customer control, and quite rightly, frankly, and it's how you step up and make sure you can do that. There's a place for Kazoo, there's a place for the large retail groups. I think what you'll see is less physical retailers and some national brands that you consider the same as Kazoo, really. That's that's where it'll be. They'll be one of many. So it's very unlikely that we're going to see Kazoo being able to offer online cars for 10 15% cheaper than the bigger franchises that could actually drive such huge volume to them. Not if they want to make a profit, no. That's, today, it doesn't seem like profits matter to some people. <laughs> yeah, but eventually they do. Which is part of the issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah I sure. mean, you know, you can sell the sizzle for a period of time, but eventually investors want to see dividends. And you only get dividends if you make profit. So, you know, that's the key part of this, really. And that's not going to go away anytime soon. You know, I think one of the reasons why the market caps have been kept down on, on some of the retail businesses is we've gone through a period now where you're not being able to pay dividends. You can't, you can't have furlough money from the government and then pay dividends, you know. So that will change, I think, more in the, you know, in 12 months' time, actually. <laughs>